1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life, and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our
2: great country, or even around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America channel, uh, Variety channel, and I'm always excited to be with you. Hands down, I say that every time and it's always true. Uh, we're going to get into something truly disturbing today on All Rise because the libertarian values of justice, uh, equality are, are under siege because anytime someone is convicted wrongly in our country and is serving time in jail, prison or otherwise, it's a, it's a blight on who we are. Now I know it's a complicated world. Sometimes bad things will happen, but we simply must. All stand together and, and reduce this uh, to, to hopefully zero as we can. And that's what we're going to be talking about today on this segment of All Rise. It's the Innocence Project. And the, the title is The Innocence Project There But For the Grace of God, because any one of us could be prosecuted by the state government federal government. In fact, I was a former assistant United States attorney, a federal prosecutor. And one time when the clerk called a case of United States versus Smith, I heard Mr. Smith to my left say, oh my God. I mean, imagine having the entire government of the United States of America against me. Uh, It's pretty overwhelming. But we have to have a bastion, an institution of support to provide Defendants defendants that cannot afford it with with counsel. Sometimes that doesn't work, but we're talking to a man here, Justin Brooks, uh, Esquire, is the director of the Innocence Project in San Diego, and I'm truly mortified to tell you that they are successful. Uh, That, As I understand it from their website, they had 12 exonerations in this innocence network last year alone. I mean, 12 people that were serving usually huge amounts of time in prison were found to have been exonerated, were found in many ways simply factually to be innocent, simply not what our country stands for. So... This project is here for us all, and holding the reins of the project in San Diego, California, is our guest, Justin Brooks. Justin, welcome to All Rise, and thank you for being with us.
3: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
2: Tell us a little bit about your background, uh, and, and uh where where you were raised, what your background is, and then uh the uh, formation of the Innocence Project. Tell tell us about how that occurred because it, it's not all that long ago that, that uh, this began.
3: Sure. Uh so I grew up mostly on the East Coast. I I spent my high school years actually in Puerto Rico, which uh had an interesting impact on the way I saw the world and saw criminal justice issues as well. Um, I went to uh, college in Philadelphia and then law school in Washington, D.C., and I'd actually planned on becoming a corporate lawyer. Uh, My father, I saw, go through a number of bankruptcies growing up, and it always seemed like the lawyers ended up (laughs) the best off in the deal. (laughs) So my intention was to be a corporate lawyer. I got a business degree, an undergrad at Temple University in Philadelphia, and then went to American University in Washington for my law degree. And then my first year of law school, uh, one of my professors took the class out to a prison, and it was the first time I'd been exposed to that. And I started talking to the inmates, and they were asking me questions, and I didn't have any answers. Um, But I ended up, as a result of that experience, starting to teach in the prisons when I was in law school. And uh, I got out of law school and got a fellowship at Georgetown Law School to work in a prison clinic. And, uh, that's kind of how I started my career. I was, I was doing prison, prison clinic work, uh, as well as representing people as a court appointed attorney in DC Superior Court at the kind of height of the crack wars. And the more time I spent in prison, the more I saw how, what a failing system it was, how, you know, very little rehabilitation was going on. Uh, I started uh, with a, a guy named Rick Rowe, a professor at Georgetown, a family literacy program in the D.C. prisons to try teach inmates how to teach their children to read, and we bring the children to the prisons and uh, try to break the cycle of literacy in those families. And I just got deeper and deeper into the work and prison work and criminal justice work, and then I got uh, one day a great offer to move to Michigan, to East Lansing, Michigan, and teach first-year criminal law class, and was able to, you know, buy a nice little Victorian house for $80,000, and my kid could walk to school and to a nice public school. So I got sucked in by academia for a short period of time, but it didn't last very long before I read about a woman sitting on death row in Chicago, and uh, the article I read said her lawyer pled her out and she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. Oh. And I thought, I've never heard How of that before? <laughs> I had not either. Sentenced to death, no trial, <laughs> no negotiated plea with the DA, just the death penalty. And so I go meet with her on death row. She was Puerto Rican and like I said, I spent a lot of my formative years in Puerto Rico and I find this woman who doesn't really understand what's happened to her and she's got a death date sentence. And uh, she said, yeah, my lawyer said, this, is, this was the best thing for me to do, and I'm innocent. Huh. <laughs> so I said, you pled guilty, got the death penalty, and you're innocent? And she said, yeah. So I went back to the law school I was teaching, and I told that story to my class. I said, there's this woman on death row, she says she's innocent, who wants to help out? And uh, the Innocence Project was born that day for huh. me. Uh, four students uh, raised their hands, and we sat on my kitchen table and started working on the case and investigated the crime scene and went and tracked down the witnesses, and we found out she was, in fact, factually innocent. Good God. And uh, so I got her death sentence reversed, and I decided this is what I wanted to do with my life, so I quit my tenure-track faculty position and, and moved to the belly of the beast, California, the biggest <laughs> prison system in America, death row, mandatory minimums, three strikes, strikes—the promised land for defense attorneys. And uh, I started the California Innocence Project 20 years ago. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. I've been litigating innocence cases, and I've been able to personally walk 30 of my clients out of prison who are innocent. And I've got a whole team of lawyers and law students that do this work.
2: That's just marvelous. Uh, That's just you're, you're doing God's work and, and it's a blight on us all if things like this happen. You know, I was a judge for 25 years. Uh, I never sentenced anybody to death, uh, or often to prison, but, but, uh, it can happen. And when I speak with prosecutors, young prosecutors or otherwise, I tell them the truth, which is, it is your obligation to do the right thing for the right reason. And, and police officers mm-hmm. have that obligation and, uh, so do prosecutors. And, and it's just, it's, it's taken advantage of so often. In fact, Justin, I can tell you I was – it was actually on the 4th of July, late at night. I was interviewed on something called Coast to Coast, which is an AM radio uh, program that, that is Coast to Coast. And thereafter, out of the blue, I got four letters from people that are incarcerated, and uh, they you know, asked for, for help. And I'm actually having them help me write a, newspa- a, a magazine article about what life is like inside a prison. And the good, because mm-hmm. it, you have to be well, well treated if you're uh, within some standards, and then the bad and the ugly, and uh, just trying to get the word out to our various people. But what is life like yeah. inside a prison, a, a normal day? Because it's such a waste of of one's life in many ways. Uh, I happen to think that people should be incarcerated if they see the rest of us kind of as their lawful prey. And there are some people out there that, that, uh, unfortunately, for their mental stability, they, they kind of do. But many, many tens of thousands of people are in prison today, in my opinion, in California alone that should not be there. But what is life like inside a prison from what you have seen, Justin Brooks?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over the past few decades, it's, it's changed in ebbs and flows in terms of overcrowding. And, and the problem is that we, we hide people away in prisons and we hide the problems away in prisons. And, and they're not run like very efficient businesses in any sense. So that's why we end up, we've got the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have the highest recidivism rate in the world. Um, And that the wealthiest country in the world locks up a higher percentage of its population than any other country makes no sense. When you and I know that there's a very strong connection between poverty and crime, uh, it shouldn't be a wealthy country that has the most people in prison. Yet we do, and a lot of it is due to the excessive sentencing of the past few decades, the mandatory minimums, the three strikes, um, putting a lot of drug offenders in prison that could use other treatment. And so what's happened is we've clogged the prison system with all these people that, you know, shouldn't be there. And then I agree with you, there are some people who need to be there who we have to be protected from. But it ends up disabling us from us being able to do anything with the people who can be rehabilitated. Um, There's not enough education programs going on. There's not enough job trainings going on. And that's why the majority of people who go to prison, when they're released, they come back to prison. And we've we've just made the problem worse and worse and worse over the years. Um, and a lot of it's to do with politics, that politicians get reelected every few years, so they need immediate results. And so immediate results are put more police on the street, lock more people up to get an immediate result. And when we know to get long-term good results, we need to invest in people and in education and things that really reduce crime in the long run. But it's an uphill battle because you have a whole industry, the corrections industry, that profits off prisons. You have politicians that profit on -on tough-on-crime policies that get them reelected. You have giant unions. Like in California, the Prison Officers Union is one of the most powerful unions. And they actually lobby for increased sentences. So they'll build more prisons, and the union members will get more overtime. (laughs) So I think it all goes back to Willie Horton, which I'm sure you remember, maybe some of the audience doesn't, but uh, when Mike Dukakis revolving was door. As the president, yeah, and it's Mike the Dukakis revolving door. Uh, very likely could have won the presidential election against George Bush um, had the Willie Horton story not been used to, um, to say, look, uh, Mike Dukakis is soft on crime because this guy Willie Horton was a parolee and he committed a murder. And kind of every politician since then has learned it doesn't pay to be soft on crime or appear to be soft on crime. And so a lot of policies get made that don't make sense, only make sense politically, but don't make sense to us as a society.
2: Well, the, the, the saying in politics is that reality is irrelevant. It's just the voters perception of reality that counts. And that's an in- right. inherent problem that we would have in a democracy. And like you say, we, we ended up with a political slogan of getting tough on crime, uh, turning into a policy. And it's just been a disaster. I've seen it from the inside. Mm -hmm. I've seen it from the outside. And like you say, Justin, uh, the United States of America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And there was a former United States senator uh, named Jim Webb from Virginia who looked at those statistics and said, well, either we're the most criminally minded country in the world or we're doing something wrong. Which do you think it is? Mm -hmm. Of course, you see this all the time. but. How is it we, – we do have a laborious, sometimes cumbersome system of criminal justice in our country, and by and large, I think it works, uh, but it's become so coercive in my view. You mentioned the three strikes and you're out uh, penalties and the enhancements, which give so much power to the prosecutors that even if you are factually innocent, if I have three people that are going to be maybe lying, one is a jail snitch just to get a better, better deal, or others, for whatever reason, don't like me, they're going to testify against me. And if if I'm convicted of this offense, I'm going to serve 60 years in prison. Ah, but if I'll only plead guilty to it, I'll get a, a five-year sentence. And so it's the coercion, in my view, that is really resulting in wrong decisions being made do
3: you find the same well that's what happened to probably my most famous client uh, a guy named brian banks um, there's just there's actually a feature film in the theaters right now about his, his case brian was one of the best football players in the country in high school and a classmate accused him of rape and he sat in a jail for a year awaiting trial And then his lawyer told him, hey, if you take a deal, I might be able to get you probation. If you don't take a deal and go to trial, you're looking at 41 years to life. And even though he was innocent, he's a 17-year-old kid who's making this decision of, should I roll the dice and go to trial and likely die in prison or take this deal that might get me probation? And then he didn't get probation. The judge sentenced him to prison. He spent six years in prison. And after he got out, the girl came forward and said it never happened, that she'd made it up. And um, I got his conviction reversed, and he ended up playing in the NFL for a short period of time for the Atlanta Falcons. But it was a national and international news story. And I I thought it was an important story, and it's an important movie because uh, it, it just illustrates so beautifully that if sentences get so large that then you just make a business decision. And like you said, there could be a snitch making up testimony against you, but you can't be sure the jury's not going to believe that. Or maybe the police used a bad ID procedure, and the jury's not going to understand that. And, you know, when innocent people are pleading guilty, we know we've got a problem in the system. And, and that's what that illustrates. It's, it's become a system of pleas and not a system of trials. And I've seen that change in the 30 years I've been practicing law that, when I got out of law school and was taking cases, there were trials going on, and you would you would roll the dice and go to trial because the difference in sentence wasn't so dramatic between taking a deal and going to trial. But as the prisons have become overcrowded, so is the criminal justice system, and so everybody pushes these cases towards a deal. And most of the time, the people are guilty. Most of the time, the result is a guilty person going to prison, but sometimes When you overcrowd a system, just like when you're manufacturing something in a factory and it's not handmade, mistakes are made. And the mistakes here have huge consequences of an innocent person going to prison.
2: Well, I heard when I was in law school, and I was there a lot earlier than you were, but that better 10 men guilty men go free than one innocent person be incarcerated that still is the Mm -hmm. standard that we should have in our country but as a practical matter it doesn't work uh, at least in some ways and again thank you for for you being that institution to hold people accountable I read on your your website that in 2003 2013, excuse me, that there were as a result of the Innocence Project nationwide, 31 people were exonerated. Is is that a is that a fact?
3: Yeah, the, we've now it, the number is growing every year. So I run the California Innocence Project, which is one of the largest projects in the world because we have the largest system. Um, but we have a network of innocence organizations throughout the U.S. We have 60 projects going on. And we've got projects in Europe and Asia, and I'm actually flying to Buenos Aires tomorrow for a conference of all our projects in Latin America. And this movement has just been growing and growing and growing because there's innocent people in prison everywhere. And if you go to the Registry of Exonerations, you'll see that there's now been more than 2,400 um, cases of wrongful convictions that have been identified in the United States alone. So I think, you know, a couple of decades ago, people thought this was an occasional thing that happened, and now we're exonerating somebody every week. And the other thing is, the people we exonerate are really just the tip of the iceberg, because they're the lucky ones. They're, they're the ones where the evidence wasn't thrown out, where there was evidence that could later show they're innocent. Um, in most of the cases I look at, I think there's a good chance it's an innocent person, but I have the burden of proof, and I don't have the evidence to prove it. So if a snitch puts someone in prison by lying, and I can't prove that they're lying, then I can't do anything with that case. Um, in Brian Banks' case, if the girl hadn't come forward and said she was never raped, he's got that hanging over his head the rest of his life. He's a convicted sex offender. So when you look at that, we've identified you know thousands of wrongful convictions. That means there's many, many more of them. And I think people don't like to think about it, because if you believe there's that many wrongful convictions, then you've got to believe that someday you might up and be in prison, uh, regardless of whether you've done anything wrong. And, and that's the reality in the United States.
2: Well, hence, there but for the grace of God, because this literally could happen to any of us. Uh, it it can and does happen to any one of us here. Uh, I understand, though. This is shocking, too, that you in San Diego receive something in the order of 6,000 requests per year to, for help. Uh, is that accurate, yeah. too? How do you, yeah, how do you decide? Yeah, last year we received
3: 6,000. So what I are your criteria
2: for, for deciding that, hey, I'll, I'll work on this one but not that one?
3: Yeah, that's the toughest part of the job. That is the hardest thing. Um, we get these 6,000 letters in. I've got a team of law students and undergrads who open up all the mail. and. We send out questionnaires to everybody who writes to us. We then evaluate the questionnaire and and see is this a possible case that could have legs. Um, The students write up memos. They then get assigned to lawyers in my office to review. Uh, We've got a ton of volunteer lawyers to review cases for us. And we're looking for the needle in the haystack. And we're looking for the case where we believe they're innocent and, more importantly, we believe we could prove it. Uh, then it moves into an investigation phase, and every year hundreds of cases move on to that where we go out and do the field work, go to the crime scenes, track down biological material, track down witnesses, pull all the files, talk to the trial lawyer, um, meet with the client in prison. And I've, I've got a whole little army that does that every day no. all over the state, and... uh you know, it's 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 a private enterprise that is funded. By the way, I mean we've gone and raised money to do this work with bake sales, and we sell T-shirts on our website, CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, and it's a we're a private enterprise trying to mop up mistakes by the government uh, because these guys have run out of government options. The government's thrown away the key on them, and they're sitting there just waiting to die. We're really the last stop for them. We're the final stop before they're going to die in prison. And that's why it's heartbreaking every day how many people we say no to, and we know that a bunch of them are innocent. We just don't have any confidence we can prove it.
2: Yes, and that that is, the for people that don't understand, uh, yes, it, the government has the burden of proof to convict you, but once you're convicted, uh, you really have the burden of proof to show that it was erroneous in some fashion. Uh, Mm -hmm. It used to be eyewitness misidentifications, and in fact, sometimes Justin Brooks uh, from the Innocent Project, uh, when I was on the bench and I had a criminal trial, and somebody was uh, saying, oh yes, I, I recognize that was the person, I would ask the question saying, look, if this were me, I don't think I'm very good at eyewitness identification. I'm not, I'm not that confident. Are you? And of course always they would say yes, but, but to what degree do you believe that now wrongful convictions come from mis- eyewitness identifications as opposed to some other issues?
3: Our studies show that it is still the leading cause of wrongful conviction in America and I believe in the world as well because it's based on the frailty of human memory And it's based on the fact that when a person walks into court and points at someone and says, I'm 100% sure that person did it, that's enough to convict you. So it's perceived by jurors as very powerful evidence, even though the studies show it's extraordinarily weak. And I always use the example of, you know, you're in a restaurant and you order soup and then the waiter or waitress walks away and you change your mind and you think, oh, I don't want the, the pea soup. I want the chicken noodle soup. And then you look up. And you say, which one was my waiter again? (laughs) And every time I talk to a group about that, I say, how many people here have experienced that? Everyone raises their hand.
2: I'm raising my hand too, Justin. I was chuckling (laughs) when you say That's exactly happened to me. It happened happened to to me last night, as a matter of fact, I hate
3: to say, but yes. And that's a great situation for an identification because typically there's bright lighting. You're looking at the person in the face. You're trying to make the ID just a few minutes after having the initial experience with them. No one has a gun in your face, so you're not afraid. There's no, you know, distortion going on because a crime is going on. All these things that we know make your memory worse. It's a great situation for your memory to be fully functioning, but it just doesn't. Humans are bad at identifications. And when the police don't use good procedures or they start suggesting it might be somebody that they think it is the whole thing goes off the rails and all you need is one id by one person to put you in prison i have a client rafael madrigal and you can see his story on our website CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. and he went to prison for nine years based on a photo that was taken when he was a teenager and he was almost 30 when this crime was committed and he was 30 miles away working on the line at a factory at the time of the crime There was no physical evidence connecting him. There was no motive. There was nothing except an eyewitness, which was a white woman, identifying him, a Mexican man, from a photo when he was a teenager. And fortunately, I was able to later on prove definitively that he was at work. Uh, His lawyer hadn't investigated the case very well, but there was proof that he was working on the line doing the manufacturing at the exact moment of the shooting. And he went to prison for nine years. And it's that easy They just flip through some photos. Um, Other times, if you're the person who finds the dead person, you know, putting yourself on the crime scene, if they don't find somebody else for that crime, you're getting convicted of it. And if you're in a relationship with that person, I've seen it over and over again, husbands and wives wrongfully convicted for murders because they come home and find their spouse or their boyfriend and girlfriend dead. And now they've got forensic evidence putting you on the scene, There'll probably be someone in your life that'll say there are problems in your marriage. that don't want to be in the center of the drama. Um, but there's just so many ways to get wrongfully convicted. There's faulty science, bad IDs, snitch testimony, coerced confessions. And most of the time, by the way, it's just, it's mistakes. It's not malicious. And I think when I was a young lawyer, I used to think things were more malicious. And now I just believe in the bell curve that <laughs> there's this, whether you're talking sure. about plumbers or lawyers or judges, there's a few people who are extraordinary at their work. There's most people who are good to okay. And then there's this small group that are terrible and corrupt. Yep. And I think the terrible and corrupt is the small part of it, but the bigger part of it is just the mistakes that are made along the way.
2: Well, we have and, uh, to have uh, obstacles in the way of being convicted, and those obstacles are being eroded. And we have people, good people, like Justin Brooks here, who is helping us do God's work in this area. So we're going to come back after a couple of messages, Justin. And But again, just please accept our thanks. It's got to be enormously gratifying to even ha- affect one person being exonerated, much less the, the dozens that you have. So, so thank you for this. This is very disturbing to me i've been in the criminal justice or the justice system all my professional life and i just wasn't even aware of the depth to which this is a problem and we have good people like justin brooks here combating that on behalf of us all there but for the grace of god so after these messages we'll come back and explore a little bit more including getting your website where people can get a little more information don't let me forget to have you mention that but we'll hear these again after these few words
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains.
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way, with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back after those good
2: words. And this is Judge Jim Gray again with our great guest, uh, Justin Brooks of the Innocent Project in San Diego, bringing on just, just mortifying information. Uh, talk about some of this. First of all, if someone wants more information, they want to help, they have a story or anything else, uh, what is the website, Justin? Where can they get in contact with you if, in fact, they're in the San Diego area?
3: So if, if their case is in California, they would go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, and that's the project that I'm the director of and have been running for the past 20 years, CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. Thank you for that. And if they're elsewhere? Well, they could go to, we have projects all over the United States, so they could go to innocencenetwork.org in order to find a project that's in their area. And most of the projects are set up geographically to handle cases within their state. And then we've also got projects in Europe and Asia and Latin America. If any people from there are listening, they could find out where those are as well.
2: So before we get back to the serious, uh, my wife keeps instructing me to uh, bring on a little bit of levity. So I can tell you, Justin, that uh, I recently read a book on anti-gravity, and I just couldn't put it down. That's my attempt for the day, but uh, not even worth a chuckle. <laughs> oh, I did get a chuckle. Okay, well, I, I'm consistent. So you and I have something in common, Justin. Actually, I wrote a book. On uh, our drug policy called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial indictment of the war on drugs back in 2001, Mm. and it was published by Temple University Press. So you and I have something at least in common as to Temple University, and I was also in Peace Corps training in uh, Yabucoa, Puerto Rico. ¿Conoce Yabucoa in Puerto Rico, señor? Por supuesto. Por supuesto. So he does. He knows. He's been to Yabacoa. I haven't been there since, but spent three weeks there. It was really a neat place. Yeah, and Puerto Rico just got hammered.
3: Yeah, I go down there once or twice a year. I helped start the Puerto Rico Innocence Project, and I I teach at Interamericana Law School, a class on wrongful convictions. I'll be down there in January. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's become a global movement, and and Puerto Rico certainly has its problems, some people in prison, but every state, every country in the world has innocent people in prison.
2: Yes, yes. Well, some by design, if you get to totalitarian regimes, but not the United States of America. We we must be vigilant and double and redouble our efforts. Uh, So you say you're worldwide. I know that you're in Argentina and Puerto Rico. Uh, Where else is the Innocence Project?
3: So I run a thing called Red Inocente, which is a network of projects in Latin America. So we have a number of them in Mexico. We have them in Central America. We have projects in Chile and Colombia and Ecuador. Um, we pretty much cover all of Latin America. And then I'll be going to Amsterdam uh, in a couple of months for our annual European meeting. Hmm. And we've got projects uh, all over Europe that have cropped up in the U.K. and in Germany and Eastern Europe. And, are, you know, and we have an Asian network where we've got our projects in Japan and in Taiwan, um, and we've got them in New Zealand and Australia. So it's, it's pretty amazing. When I started doing this work 20 years ago, we had our first meeting of people doing the work in a living room in Chicago, and we all split a pizza. And at our, our last conference, we had 1,000 uh, people there who are all involved in this work. So it's it's really grown as a movement, and a, and a really positive movement. I think one of the things I love about this work is it's not about Democrats, not about Republicans, it's about you know doing the right thing. And or libertarians, it's, it's, Justin, no libertarians. People in prison.
2: <laughs> Indeed. You know, I have said on this or program numbers of times that the most important thing in life is gratification. It's not love, it's not power, it's not money and the rest. It's getting gratification, meaning that you have made the world a slightly better place because you've been on it for our time of years. You've got to be got, be receiving a great deal of gratification for the work you're doing, Justin Brooks. Thank you again, but, but you, you really have
3: to feel good about this. I mean, the feeling of walking someone out of prison that uh. had just been lost, that it, it, their life had been over, and bringing them home to their family is just... Uh it's it's uh, yeah i can't describe it i've been to have that experience once would be amazing to have the experiences i have 30 sometimes um it's humbling and it's uh really i, I love my work I and invigorating
2: work. it's just got to be challenging because yeah. okay so i've said earlier and i think that this is accurate that the united states of america has five percent of the world's population and 25 percent of its prisoners uh do you know – what is the percentage of prisoners in uh, Germany, for example? I mean, how, how, what percent do we have here as opposed to them per capita? Is, is it anywhere near what we have? Not even close. I don't think there's
3: anywhere in Europe that comes even close to our numbers. And when you go to northern Europe and you look at the recidivism rates, they're extraordinarily low. Um, In some countries like Norway, it's almost something you could put on your resume that you've been to prison because you're less likely to offend than someone in the general population, unlike in the United States, where it's the worst black mark you could have is you've been to prison, because the assumption is you're still a criminal, and you're probably going to commit a crime here, and so we're not going to give you work. Um, I think the, 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 the European attitude is you get sentenced you know, your punishment will be the sentence of the time you're out of our society, but while you're there, we're going to try and make you into a better person. And the attitude in this country is, oh, we're going to punish you as much as we can during that time, and then we're going to put you back out in society. And it's just—it's all wrong. its uh, It makes no sense for society at all. It punishes all of us. And there's just no denying, when you look at these statistics, the fact that the United States has more people in prison than China, and China has a billion more people than we do, is startling.
1: It is. And it, and
3: it, but we've got to start digging our way out one way or the other.
2: On a prior show, Justin, we had a wonderful, dedicated lady named Judy Lamborn who has a program called Open Gate. And what they do is take people that have been released from prison, felons, and train them to be chefs. And she says mm-hmm. that, you know, they're at least 75% successful in getting these graduates a job and that uh, she cited, and I think she's right, that you have three times less chance of being recidivist if you're employed than if you're not employed. It's just got to make a huge difference. Have
3: you felt the same thing? Uh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I, since just about a month ago, I was in London, and I was at a prison there, and they have a restaurant, a luxury restaurant in the prison, in Brixton huh. Prison in London, and they do train the inmates there to be maitre d's, and chefs, and they're trying to train them to get good jobs at really nice restaurants, not McDonald's, so that they actually, you know, have a better choice than crime. I think the other thing that's important to keep people out of prison is keeping them connected with their families, and yet we do the opposite in the United States. We build prisons out in the middle of nowhere. So, for example, in California, the prisons are in the middle of the desert where the land is cheap hundreds of miles away from the cities. And so if your family's in Los Angeles, most of them are poor people who can't afford to travel out across the desert and stay in a hotel room to get in at five in the morning and line up at the prison. Um, So we break these families down while people are in prison. And so now the guys get out, they don't have a job, they're very disconnected from their children and their spouses, and they don't really have enough reasons to stay home enough reasons to not choose crime, and this is where we keep shooting ourselves in the foot because we don't think about the the real utilitarian value of what we're doing and how can we accomplish the goal of cutting costs. Uh, Even if you look at it from a purely economic model and not a human model, it doesn't make any sense what we're doing
2: it's something in the order of $75,000 a person to keep a person in prison, as I understand it. Uh, my goodness, that's yeah. easily the most expensive option that we could do. Uh, I went to, actually, this will be surprising to a lot of people, to a seminar or conference actually sponsored by the Koch brothers. It was a while ago in New Orleans, and they were talking about jobs for felons, for convicted felons once they were released. And they had the saying that no one is, should be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. That most people, when they get out of prison, don't want to go back. They want to live a better life. They want to get job skills and to be able to get a job. But many times, if you're you need to get a license, a government license, to do various occupations, and they're excluded if they're ex-felons, which just makes no sense, that, that uh, these are things that we need to do. Before we move on, though, Justin, you mentioned the name of the prison in London. I'm going to put Judy Lamborn in contact with them to see if we can start something like that here. Which prison was it? It
3: was Brixton Prison. And the place is called The Clink. You can actually just Google it and find it. <laughs> it's really remarkable. I talk a group, took a group of my students there. You just, it's the only restaurant that you need to make reservations weeks in advance because they have to do a security clearance on you. But you can actually go to the prison and have dinner. <laughs> I'll be They bring you in, and they set up <laughs> one part of the prison in a really nice setting. <laughs> and the inmates are your waiters and the maitre d' and the chefs. And they... They actually get famous chefs in there to work with these guys, and then when they're coming out, they're getting jobs at some of the best restaurants in London. And that's the way we have to start thinking. Even if we don't care about these guys, we need to start thinking about it for our own reasons of, if they don't have good options, they're going to commit crimes. I mean, that's how humans make choices.
2: Well, I've been involved uh, in drug policy reform now since 1992, and I've seen that Many people who go to prison are drug addicted. And, of course, you can get all the drugs you want in prison governed by price, but but they're so expensive that you can't maintain your addiction. But they don't get any drug treatment while they're in prison. So now they're eventually released, and most people do get released eventually. OK, so I want to do better, but I can't get a job, so my my children are not with me anymore, my wife has given up on me, whatever. And so what do I do? Well, I go back to taking drugs. I get depressed, so I take drugs, so I get drug tested, and I'm back in prison. And and there was one prison it's in norco here in in california and near orange county and they have an 85 percent recidivism rate within a year and mostly it's because of drug treatment that they are, that they send people out that are still drug addicted it's simply counterproductive and i'm not talking about being innocent and the rest although we we step on them just much too greatly but you have to see these people time and again justin brooks of the innocence project
3: yeah it's It's an evil cycle that we're not digging ourselves out of because, you know, when the system gets overcrowded and then people get less counseling, they get less help, and now they come out and now we've got more people coming back in and the situation keeps getting worse. So, you know, I think the solution is, first of all, we've got to decriminalize. A lot of things in order to decrease the population, then we've got to decrease sentences to decrease the population, and then you can start focusing the resources on the people who need it, and you end up saving huge amounts of money in the long run. And I think ultimately, by the way, I think the economic arguments are the only ones that are going to work in the United States, because getting people to care at the human level for the people in prison, it's just been an uphill battle. They don't see it. Uh, you stop seeing them as human beings because you don't really see them. They're hidden away in these prisons. But I think the economic arguments are what work. And, and we've seen the same thing with the death penalty. The death penalty, every state that's rejected it, it's been based on economic arguments that we're wasting a lot of money on having this death machine in place when we can, for cheaper cost, put people in prison for the rest of their lives. Well, I, I've I think written we're, a... we're going to see some movements.
2: I've written a column in the Loyola Law Review, which is here in Los Angeles, and uh, it talked about the death penalty. And without getting too far into it, it just isn't working. No matter what your political philosophy is, the death penalty is simply not working to sustain whatever that Mm -hmm. is. And we're making victims just be pawns in the whole scheme and eventually you know 15 years later you'll have a retrial you have to make the victims go through again the torturous sad stories it just isn't working and to go on a little bit farther in california i think the biggest misnamed institution we have is called the department of corrections because they don't correct anything it should just be the department of prisons i assume that that's something that you agree with yeah It's,
3: it's just become warehousing and, yes. you know, and when you have the actual department lobbying for increased sentences, because that's what's in the best interest of their employees, uh, it's just so broken. And the politics that go into it, and most people don't understand that. They don't understand that when you have a giant prison officers union, that now they have an interest in the prisons. And when you have an industry that builds prisons, that funds political campaigns, then it just keeps going. It keeps the, you got to feed the machine. And as we're cutting education and cutting all these other things, we're increasing prison populations and increasing funding for a failing enterprise.
1: Well,
2: we have numbers of geriatrics as well, and... and I mean, some people, they couldn't hurt you. They couldn't even throw their walker at you if they tried. So, I okay. mean, they're just simply not a threat to us. Now, I'm not saying that people like Charles Manson ever should be released, but there are numbers and other people where we, we have nothing to fear from them. It's We're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on them. We give them meals that are ground up, and we don't have uh, any stairs there. They're all ramps. I mean, they're just old people, mm-hmm. and we should give serious thought about changing that circumstance, but
3: coming back to yes, the Innocence Project I was just going to say, studies have shown that recidivism rate drops to almost zero after 50 yeah. and that's why most countries, when you say life in prison, they mean 20 or 25 years but the United States is one of the rare countries where life can be life so you have yes. your housing octogenarians at really increased cost of health care and ramps, like you said, yeah, it yes. makes no sense no, so yeah, it, going it, back it, to the Innocence Project
2: two To to trade someone's freedom for more job security is is an ultimate obscenity, too. So uh, at any rate, Hmm. we're all sitting here agreeing with each other, but but you are doing the work. I recently read a book. It's called Just Mercy by a fellow who's doing what you do, Brian Stevenson, but I think it was in Alabama, Georgia area. And it tells the story who's basically – Doing, again, what you are in the 1970s, 1980s, which mostly black defendants were convicted and sometimes executed for crimes for which they were factually innocent. If anyone is interested and wants to be disturbed in reading a life account – Get the book Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is an attorney who does what the Innocence Project is doing in San Diego. He's doing it, I, I assume, still uh, in the South. Are, do you know this man, or are you familiar
3: with his book Just Yeah, Mercy? I met I met Brian a long, long time ago uh, when he was starting to do the kind of work that he's been doing for like decades. He's been a real hero in our movement. Brian's been focused on. The death penalty cases for a long time, poor people, mostly black, sentenced to death with very few resources, um, a number of them innocent people. So he's, he's been at the forefront of this kind of work for decades. And there's an army of people out there, like Brian, that do this work. They're the kind of unheralded lawyers who <laughs> make, choose a different path than going into big firms or going into sure. government work who do, do this kind of pro um grassroots work around the country.
2: Well, it's gratifying work, and again, there but for the grace of God. But, well, I've been involved in the justice system all my professional life, and people don't realize this, and I know you do because you were a criminal defense attorney for a while in, in Washington, D.C., but it's important to stress that it is not the job the job description of a criminal defense attorney to prove their clients are innocent. I mean, flat out not. And It's not their job to prove that they're not guilty either. It is their function to make the system work. And by that mean, uh, I, I mean to say that the, require the prosecutor to present enough admissible evidence to a neutral jury of 12 people to convince them beyond a doubt based upon reason of the client's guilt. And if they do that, they've been successful. Uh, I assume that you agree with that as well. And there should, in effect, I'll, I'll add to that that today, in Most jurisdiction I'm aware of in the United States, a jury in a criminal case can come back with one of two verdicts, either guilty or not guilty. I think there should be a third of guilty, not guilty, or not proved. Uh, What do you think of this diatribe that I'm giving, Justin, uh, as to the function of a criminal defense attorney and the jury verdicts?
3: I certainly agree with you on the function of a criminal defense attorney. I I tell my students that your basic job is to be the one person in that courtroom not judging your client. Uh, Everybody else is judging them. The DA is judging them. The judge is judging them. The jury is judging them. Your job is to force the prosecution to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, and if they do that, and your job is to advocate for the best sentence that your client can get under the circumstances. It's it's not for you to decide whether they're innocent or guilty. Um, it's not for you to you know the whole notion of people saying I couldn't represent a guilty person. Me that says you don't think someone deserves a lawyer in a courtroom to have one person in there making sure that that's proven. That's really what it's all about. And I think if you come into this career with that attitude, you can have a long successful career. If you come into it naively thinking, I'm going to love all my clients and they're all innocent, then you're going to burn out very quickly. Uh, so th- that is the role. The role is to force the state to prove their case. And, you know, the idea of, of guilty, not guilty, and then what's the third option? Not proved. Not, Just not, not proved. proved. To, to, me, not that, well, to me, the not proved means not guilty since uh, it, they have not proven their case and under our burden of proof, uh, you're innocent until proven guilty. So thus you're innocent because you weren't proven guilty. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's semantics. I think people look at it differently. They'll, they'll say you're not proven innocent just because they didn't prove you guilty. And that's why in my line of work, in, in habeas, we actually literally do get our clients declared innocent because we've now had to prove their innocence, yes. as opposed as opposed to the state proving their guilt. So yeah, you're right that the defense attorney's job isn't to prove their innocence; it's just to make sure that they haven't, they have or haven't proven guilt. There, but for the grace there's, of god there's a lot of. Them. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what defense attorneys do, and we're not very popular. And that's why I also tell my students that don't walk into a courtroom as a defense attorney thinking you're ahead because the government has to prove their case. You're down two touchdowns with two minutes to go because <laughs> when the jury looks at you, client, in shackles and an orange jumpsuit, uh, and you're the guy standing next to them, you're down. You know
2: yeah. That, that's a terrible thing to have somebody shackled in view of the jury and certainly in a jumpsuit, uh, but those things do happen and it's just not right. So if people are listening to this interview and would like to support you or, again, uh, they have information that they'd like to pursue, once again, please give us your website so that they can get more information or get some help.
3: Sure. They should go to the California Innocence Project. And it's californiainnocenceproject.org. Uh, they can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and they can follow me on Twitter at Justin O Brooks. And then they can see my tweets every day on these issues we're talking about, talking about <laughs> criminal justice and all the sure. issues we have. Yes, indeed, and there and there are many.
2: Um, so we just have a couple of minutes left, Justin. Again, not only thank you for what you're doing, but thank you for sharing this with us on, on All Rise. We, we need to hear this information. We can't hide from something, an atrocity like this going on so pervasively or, or so often at least in our society. So you've talked about a lot about our criminal justice system. Uh, do you have any thoughts about re- the posting of bail in order to be released from custody pending trial, or do you just not really get into that area?
3: I don't deal with it in my work, but obviously I did as a criminal defense attorney. And, you know, what just fundamentally troubles me, but I understand the concept. We want to make sure people show up for trial. But what ends up happening is it's really just a a punitive thing for poor people, because if you have any resources, you're able to put up the bail money. If you have a lot of resources, then it almost doesn't matter because it's not even going to get you to come back for trial. So it just ends up, it, the bail is set based on the crime, and you don't look at the individual person. So if you have a very poor person in front of you, then they just can't afford it. And so now they're going to be sitting in jail awaiting trial. If you have a wealthy person, they can afford it. And, and it's really more about the wealth of the individual in terms of whether they're showing up at trial or staying in jail than the crime itself. And that's when there's a real moral question about the bail system.
2: Well, there is. And plus, you know, if if I stay in jail for 30 days, I'm going to lose my job. So I have that additional Mm -hmm. coercion to plead, oh, plead guilty to this. Even though they can't prove it or even maybe you you might even be innocent, but you get time served. So I get to get out of jail now. Otherwise, I stay in jail. Maybe I get exonerated later, but I've lost my job and and my family is now suffering, etc. So these are things that I think all of us people of goodwill in our country should be aware of and should – do our best to to try to change. Uh, Any final thoughts? We just have a couple of minutes left, Justin. Again, thank you for spending your time with us and and sharing this information and for what you're doing. But uh, any final thoughts? Sure.
3: Um, You know, this is all of our criminal justice system, which is why it's so great that you do this show. Um, it, it, It protects us. It protects our assets. It protects our children. It protects our lives. So we can't just take that for granted and take all the good from it and ignore the bad. We get all this benefit from it, so we're responsible for making it better. And we're responsible for people who go to prison who who didn't commit crimes. And we're responsible for people who get overcharged and overpunished because we didn't care about that. And so, you know, I'd ask everybody to think about that. Think about it when you're jurors. Think about it when you look at organizations like mine and whether to support them. Uh, We all have a responsibility in this. I don't think people necessarily have to devote their lives to it like I have, but at least be thoughtful about our system.
2: Thank you again. Just this is a really important message, please hear ye, hear ye as we say, uh, we can 't all rise together if some of us are being wrongfully convicted, wrongfully incarcerated, simply watching their lives go by uh, for for a waste uh, so this is what we have fallen into in our country, mindless incarceration. There's lots of money in it, uh, and uh, that's, that's part of the problem, too, of the politics and the rest. Plus, you know, who can fight back? Oh, I'm, I'm a politician, and I'm going to make your, your, your streets safe by putting all those bad guys in prison. Usually the bad guys, by the way, are, are Hispanics and blacks or, or minorities. So these are things that we all need to be aware of. So there you have it. In many ways, like we always say on this show, life can be complicated, but it can also be made more straightforward, understandable, and productive by using the libertarian approaches. What Justin Brooks is doing is responsibility. I was a judge for 25 years. I'm in the responsibility business. But that goes both ways. The government must be held responsible as well. We need to have criminal defense attorneys upholding our system. We need to have prosecutors that uphold our system as well as judges and the anchor there if all else fails is people like Justin Brooks. So thank you again for being with us. You have that information as to how you can contact them more. California uh, CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org Pay them a visit. See what's going on. Be shocked at what they're telling you. And imagine being Justin Brooks and walking a, an exonerated person out of prison who otherwise would have spent another 10, 20 of the rest of his life there. It's got to be gratifying. So he's there. Thank you. Lots of good things are happening in this world and one of them is the innocence project so we'll talk again visit with us again next week or on demand if you just go to uh, voiceamerica.com click on the variety channel and you can hear any of these episodes on demand that you wish so in the meantime until next week or on demand this is judge jim gray saying thank you and life is good